Hey everyone, welcome to AWS FM, a podcast with guests from around the AWS community. I'm your host, Adam Elmore, and today I'm joined by Sean Swick-Swang. Hi, Sean. Hey, Adam. How's it going? It's going well. I've been extremely excited. I, I've said this on a ton of podcasts, and I'm excited to get on with the guests, but this has been a long time because before I took my break, I was going to get on with you, uh, took a big, long break, and I finally got you on. You're somebody... And I'm going to say a lot of things. I'm very dramatic. Uh, <laughs> but you're somebody I really admire in the online space as this ability, like you have this ability to think about things and distill them and put them out there in a way that I admire greatly. I'm so excited to have you on here. It's going to be hard for me to stay on any one topic because I have like just a list of questions I want to ask you basically. Uh, well. First, could you kind of tell everyone on this show who you are, just the, the sort of short version of Sean. Yeah. Um, so I'm Sean, born and raised in Singapore, went to the States for college, uh, and then spent my first career in finance, uh, where I did investment banking and hedge funds. Um, kind of loved the coding part um, because every junior finance person starts to learn to code um, and didn't like the stress of the finance part. So I pivoted to tech, uh, where I was a software engineer at Two Sigma, uh, and then I was in developer relations at Netlify, AWS, uh, Temporal, and I've just joined Airbyte as head of developer experience. Oh, I did not know you weren't still at Temporal. Uh so Airbyte, what is Airbyte? <laughs> Airbyte is a data integration company, uh, but basically helps you to, it basically has the largest community of open source connectors for connecting to any SaaS API source into your data warehouse. So for anyone doing data engineering, the first task that you have to do is to get data from all the different silos of data in your business that let's say you have like a, you know, Twilio, oh, sorry, Salesforce being the source of truth for customers, uh, Stripe being the source of truth for transactions, get all of them into a single data warehouse for you to do operations on. So uh, the goal is to have uh, the largest community of open source developers for connecting uh, all the data and liberating your data from all the silos that you have in your business. And how long ago did you start? How did I miss this? Uh, a couple of weeks ago, I actually have okay. not announced it on Twitter, which is why. Oh, I, well, I there like you go. To, I like to slow play it. So when I joined Temporal, I actually waited for six months to really understand Temporal and to practice my pitch before announcing it on Twitter. Um, and that's yeah, kind of okay. how I like to do things because, well, partially... I want to be fully up to speed before I represent something publicly. Yeah. So I, I want to talk about that. You get very, very up to speed in a way that I don't see a lot of people on Twitter. I, I don't see them understand things in the way that you do. So you, you obviously write your blog is a huge source of information for me, and I've enjoyed it quite a lot. But it's not just that you write, it's that the way you think about things. Did that is that come from your finance, your sort of analytical background in, in finance, or was were you like that before? Your ability to sort of like see the whole forest, take in the way things are trending and the way things are moving, put it all together and distill it into these wonderful articles. Where does that come from? Well, so first of all, thanks for the very kind <laughs> words. Um, I don't hear back from my readers that often, so it's really nice um, yeah. when I get to talk to someone like this. Um, so yeah, I would say like a lot of this stuff is actually um from my finance days like this is the kind of analysis that you would have to do when you do an investment uh report uh or investment research on any stock or any industry yeah. um you want to get a perspective of like what's going on what the trends are who the major players are and form an opinion on where things are going um and i think taking that finance mindset into the bets i have in terms of technologies whether or not 
it's for using them personally in my in my personal stack or for joining them as a startup employee, I think is extremely underrated. And it's something I'm trying to model and hopefully teach people someday. Although yeah. I'm, I'm not sure about the teaching part, because if I say like, you know, get rich by doing investment analysis <laughs> let's talk, uh, <laughs> on, on early stage startups, uh, I would feel like a hustler. So um, maybe not that, but yeah. like, I, I do. I just do like uh, engaging in that. And probably it's an exercise for me to think things through clearly by writing it down. And I also get a lot of feedback from from that. So I actually improve and learn a lot by learning in public. And that's the other thing that yeah. I am pretty pretty well known for. So this is the application of the general purpose learning in public principle. Yeah. No, I hope and I love your learning in public article. I hope more people see how you break down systems and, and the world around us and distill it. I hope more people do that because I'd love to have more sources of that kind of information. It's it's really fascinating. Um, I, and that's a lot of what I want to talk about today is sort of your opinions on the future and where certain things are headed. First, I want to talk, you, you did work at AWS. How long were you at AWS? A year. AWS Amplify. Yeah. So I, I'd love to know sort of, I guess, what it was like working at AWS, what you took from that, but also more broadly, I want to get into Amplify and kind of where it fits. You sort of live in that intersection, I feel like, of web and cloud and infrastructure, where things are trending. And I want to talk about Amplify's place in that. But I guess first, what was your role there like at, at AWS at Amplify? Yeah, I was a senior dev advocate at Amplify, um, basically doing demos and talks for uh, Amplify and anything. The the fun thing about working at Amplify is that you're essentially also a developer advocate for all the underlying services. So Amplify is a yeah. essentially a roll up of DynamoDB, API Gateway, AWS AppSync, um, even like file storage like S3. Like you could you could do some demos with that, and I did. I, I made like a you know DIY Dropbox clone. Um, yeah. And but its focus. Uh, on front-end engineers. And I think that was the first time that AWS had ever made a dedicated arm or products for front-end engineers. And it turned out to be a really good bet because AWS Amplify was one of the fastest-growing AWS services, uh, at least during the time that I was there. Um, so um, I thought it was just like really compelling uh, to, to try it out. And obviously, everyone has very high regard for AWS. There's a bunch of services that I that I you know only experienced uh, on, on the inside uh, and I only learned about once I once I got on the inside, and I thought that was really uh, interesting as well. A few things I'll, I'll point out. Um, I really love the AWS interview process. Actually, I felt like um, it was very rigorous, and uh, I definitely haven't had as rigorous a process anywhere else. And they really got a good look at like every single part of me before they made the decision. And fortunately for me, it was a you know unanimous uh, good decision. Uh, but I felt challenged. I felt like there was. There was a, a, a lot of uh, growth that I took away from that process as well. So I highly recommend going through it, even if you don't necessarily take the job. Um, and once you're in, I think uh, the other practice I really like was the weekly business reviews. Um, that not everyone gets to be a part of, but uh, I was. And uh, essentially, you have a P&L from the central sort of AWS finance team that week to week tells you how well you're doing or not. And people... Uh, and the PMs in particularly, in particular, they'll uh, put up highlights. They'll, they'll bring up topics of discussion, uh, and the general manager would be grilling people on. And I thought just that, that was just like a fun way to run a business. Uh, it was <laughs> yeah. a little bit stressful sometimes, a little bit dramatic, but hey, like it forced you to take on the issues head on instead of 
ignoring them for three months to a year, which I've also seen happen. <laughs> so, um, so I just really appreciated that directness. Um, and you know, everything about everything that you've heard about on the outside about AWS culture applies. Like, um, they'll send out the memo, and like the first ten minutes of the meeting will be spent in complete silence, where you just read the memo. <laughs> just read the memo. Yeah, it's real. Well, what about the leadership principle? Like you talked about interviewing there. Did you feel like you started to embody those? Did those really become something you valued or was it sort of like you're just doing it because that's what Amazon cares about? There are a few things here. So I think one, people are drawn to Amazon because of the leadership principles. Like literally is what they interview you for. So you can't really join yeah. without already being having them ingrained in you. Uh, and then second, uh, yes, it gets brought up a lot when... Uh, decisions are being made or, you know, just behavior is being modeled or, you know, discussed. Um, so especially in, in the sort of performance review stuff, you know, so yeah. I think, I think that's, it, that is useful. That is helpful. Um, but at the same time, I have problems with some of the LPs myself, you know, uh, yeah. be right a lot. What the hell is that? Right. Like, <laughs> <laughs> so what is right? And it, yes, exactly. What is right? What is a lot? Um, so I think that, for example, what is under-discussed or just like not on the table just because it comes from so, so much up high and has so much baggage and history with it is that sometimes you have to be, you have to try to be wrong um, to take more risks. Uh, and being right a lot means that you might be more conservative than you otherwise should be. It, it leads to very incrementalist thinking, which is like, all right, what is the most obvious next step? What is the low-hanging fruit? What is the sure thing? You just pick that over something that is more risky but potentially has higher impact. Yeah, no, that makes sense. I want to I want to shift gears a little bit and and talk about Amplify. Kind of now that you're outside of AWS, you mentioned they were it was sort of the first example of AWS trying to kind of go to the front end developer and and bundle up more of a developer experience. How do you feel? And you may have information from being there about traction and things like that. Like, how do you feel about Amplify's uh, sort of return on investment? And like, is is Amazon doing a good job, I guess, with Amplify in terms of trying to package up their own experience? Do you see that resonating with developers? So I think Amazon is doing a good enough job at addressing the needs of AWS customers. And that's something that is prime, first and foremost, like yeah. excels at that. Uh, it, it, Amplify could be doing a lot better at competing with the other standalone um, front-end developer-focused startups that are out there that don't have the AWS uh, infrastructure, which like should help, but actually sometimes hurts it, hurts it a little bit. So my favorite example of this is, um, so there's another company, Begin, Begin.com with uh, Brian LaRue. Uh, it's a four-person four person's company, and they also do very similar things. They deploy on top of Amazon, um, they are entirely serverless. They have, uh, you know, a smaller set of offerings that they that they that they have, but their deploy speeds are an order of magnitude faster than Amplify. They can they can deploy faster to, Ampl- to AWS than Amplify can, and then that's because yeah. Amplify um, doesn't do some of the trickery that they that they do, like uh, having a code pool ready or uh, anything like that. When people are not married to the AWS stack, just because that's the solution that that's the sort of technology provider or cloud that their company has picked, when you have free choice, then you come with no baggage, and just being from AWS doesn't give you any 
any home ground advantage anymore. Therefore, you have to really, really, really compete on developer experience. And that's something that Amplify uh, still need, still needed to work on at the time that I left. Yeah, I'm glad you brought up Begin, too. I, I'm curious how it fits into the landscape. I've, I've seen you mention Begin you know, within some of your articles, like the Cloud Distros article I think about. I want to talk about that. Uh, but how is Begin doing? I, I interact with Brian on Twitter. I generally like him a lot. I like what they're building, but it is sort of like a thing you have to buy into. It's like a, a whole different way of building applications. Do you have any sense for how they fit as a player in all of this? They're tiny. I mean, they're not, uh, they're not a rocket ship, but ship by any means, but they absolutely solved the problem for the serverless full stack minimalist aesthetic that they're going for. Those are all things I like. So right down to the API calls, having a inbuilt authentication solution uh, that you know when you when you write the serverless function, you just have the user ID and that's all done for you uh, with cookies in the background. Um, that's just beautiful. Like, <laughs> like yeah, I don't have to mess with cognito or anything like that. Like, <laughs> uh, because it's very it's very uh, straightforward. Like that is the way that I would want to build serverless applications. Uh, if like you know I didn't have like some kind of big enterprise thing uh, requirement, which like. Maybe it's a pre- premature optimization to try to glom that on in the first place, uh, which is what you're, you're required to do with uh, AWS Amplify. So I I don't think I have enough experience to really judge like are, are they the right technical choice in all aspects. But I think there's just like a certain aesthetic that you try to optimize for, and if if you have full stack needs, if you like serverless, if you like you know one of everything essentially, one storage solution, one queuing solution, one, uh, you know, database solution, uh, then begin is sort of the right curation for you. Um, yeah. And then Amplify is sort of the more fully loaded solution if you want an easy uh, way to access, let's say, um, API gateway, like uh, even like um, the, it, uh, actually just before I left, they actually launched support for serverless containers with uh uh, AWS Fargate, which is also super interesting. Oh, like, I didn't even know Amplify supported that. Yeah, exactly. They're just kind of different trade-offs in, in the spectrum. Like, Begin is way more comp- way more opinionated than, than Amplify. Uh, Amplify is way more opinionated than uh, the full set of AWS services that are possibly out there. Um, I think they serve front-end developers well in all different respects. Yeah, I think you know, I think Amplify is doing. It's definitely hitting its goals and, if, and probably exceeding its goals for. Uh, sort of adoption internally. Uh, yeah. Begin could do a better job at marketing and that's something that I should probably try to help them on just because like, I'm a friend of the company. And uh, yeah. also, I mean, I just really like the philosophy, but at the same time, like there are other competitors out there like Cloudflare uh, workers is essentially trying to become a, a Jamstack or a backend as a service platform yeah. um, because they have workers kv and durable objects and like that's a very compelling solution for a particular type of audience and it's it's weird because like you have to be much more specific now like that's the that's the thing like you have to figure out which part of the population you are in in order to figure out which provider is best for you there's there's no such thing as like one provider fits all Um, right it's really about like okay do you like the sort of minimalist approach go with begin do you like the edge first approach maybe go with cloudflare do you like the little bit more full stack, uh, scalable, you know, cloud cloudy service? Maybe go with Amplify. Um, it, it's there's a lot there. Like, do you like to self host uh, containers? Maybe go with Fly.io or Render.com. Like, there's just a lot of options out there. 
but all of them happen to be built on top of AWS, which is why uh, we had the cloud distros uh, thesis. Yeah, and I've consumed a lot of your your content on that front, <laughs> like sort of hosted backends. I do wonder where it's all headed. Maybe the answer is that there's just going to be a lot of options and because there's a lot of different use cases. I guess maybe narrowing it down, like if I'm, I really don't care about enterprise stuff or big teams. If I just care about like building stuff with small teams, startups, that's where I live. Do you have any predictions, I guess, for where like ideal product building is headed? Is it hosted backends to go with your hosted frontends on Vercel or whatever else? Is it learning AWS primitives and, and just getting good at building stuff there? Like, wh- how do you see that forecasting into the future? What's the alternative to hosted backends? I guess like what I do right now is build, like I kind of use all the Amplify services. I just don't use Amplify. So I build a lot of like bespoke APIs with AppSync and Dynamo and whatever. So like, because you have that knowledge, that's the best thing for you because you already have that knowledge. Like it's not a big deal for you to spin up another service, but for others, it would be because they would be new to that. And sometimes a a more friendly layer that abstracts it away for them would be helpful. Um, So it's really hard to say which is going to win just because uh, they're all going to win in some way, but some will be more winninger than others. (laughs) That's kind of how I view it. (laughs) Yeah, Um, Yeah. Because, at the end of the day, like cloud is such a big deal. It's such a multi-decade thing. It's going to take the rest of our lives to play out. That yeah. means that the vast majority of users of cloud haven't adopted it yet. Still, this this late into the game, they still haven't adopted it yet. It's so hard for me to wrap my brain around. <laughs> it just seems it seems like it's been so long. Uh, and and when you say the rest of our lives, I don't put it in that kind of perspective. Like. I need to calm down trying to figure out what's going to happen in the next three years. Like, it doesn't matter. Yeah. Yeah. Lambda is like seven years old. This is, this is so early. Like, the way that this looks 40, 50 years from now is going to be so different. Like, imagine, like, AWS has like a million something customers. Imagine it having 10 million. Like, there's, when you have order of magnitude, when we start to think in terms of orders of magnitude, you start to really sweat the small details a lot less because you're like, whatever, everyone's going to win. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> We all win. Yeah, I guess it's true. It's like, it's, I don't know if you've talked about this. I'm sure you've thought about it. And maybe you have written about this, but the idea of like scarcity versus like abundance mentality, I guess it's weird because all at the same time, I do, I agree with the sentiment that like, if you're on Twitter or you're like a digital, like you're very online or whatever, you should have this mentality that we can all lift each other up and we can all succeed. But then on the other hand, you've got like the climate and how much can the earth <laughs> sustain in terms of, you know, everything can only grow so much. I just had that thought that's sort of raw stream of consciousness. So I don't know if you've got any refined response to that. Is that is that sort of totally different concepts that I shouldn't conflate? What the um, limits to growth thesis? Oh, yeah, I guess that's what it's called. See, I knew you'd have a name for it or something. <laughs> Like the the idea that we can all succeed, but at the same time, we all need to do a lot less because the planet can't succeed if we all. I mean, this is about the online to the offline to online shift. So we don't we can still do a lot less and cloud can still grow because the mix of what we do in cloud versus off cloud uh, is still very much, you know, um, in, in, in imbalanced. So yeah. like, when you do when you do things like pay attention to an Andy Jesse keynote and he'll talk about like oh like you know cloud penetration is whatever twenty percent thirty percent like that is how that is how you know low it is and it's it still takes a long time for people to adopt 
for whatever reason, institutional or just uh, generational, or that maybe the t- our technology is not there yet. You know, there's still yeah. a lot that needs to be developed to to serve all kinds of markets that we that uh, it hasn't penetrated. Um, my favorite stat was that online shopping went from 10% to 20% in COVID. I can't believe it's only 20%. That's exactly, actually, right? so, that's bonkers. <laughs> so there's some version of the future where that is 70%, which means that, you know, you still have a long, 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 long way to grow for every single, every, every part of e-commerce. Yeah. And the planet can still win by maybe more, more efficient uh, sorting or uh, less uh, retail outlets, um, I don't know. I don't know about that. I, I think I, I think I'm much more shakier ground there. But like, yeah, offline to online transition, I think is a is it is a very positive thing for the, for the planet, uh, especially because a lot of uh, the major clouds are committing to net zero foot carbon footprints. I'm not sure if AWS has actually done that yet, but definitely Microsoft and Google have done it, which means AWS will eventually do it. And I know AWS has they've launched like sustainability insights and stuff recently, right? Like where you can start to see like the emissions impact of the services you're spinning up. I know Google's done that for some time, but ABS is now doing that, I think. Right, but like we're actually measuring it now versus not measuring it before. So like, yeah, yeah. whatever. <laughs> 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 this, is, this is peanuts compared to like, all right, are we moving to like electric vehicles or something? Like that is that is way more yeah. of a, an interesting concern than this stuff. Like invent a better battery and, and that works drastically accelerate the the move to solar and that would be much more meaningful than choosing plastic choosing like paper straws you know yeah like this swe- sweating over like the carbon footprint of your ec2 instance is the developer equivalent <laughs> of choosing a paper straw like really <laughs> like look I, I appreciate the the effort like the the the, the spirits the heart's in the right place but really if you want to make an impact go work on the big things so that's i'm glad you said that because this is not on my notes this is not something i plan to talk about but this is the thing that i feel like the make an impact i've really struggled i'm 15 years into my career been like a software engineer mostly like early in my career then i did a startup and then i've mostly just been doing like consulting i i feel like there are more possible things i could do with my time than ever and it's so hard for me to decide what is worth spending time on and i guess do you have any thoughts on senior engineers kind of when you get to a point in your career where uh, you have more flexibility and more opportunities what what is the most impactful thing like i've thought about making courses i've thought about building products and just continuing with consulting like is there like is there a way to split your time that you're ever going to feel good about? Probably not. <laughs> okay. <laughs> it's good to know. I can stop trying to find it. Yeah. The menu options are so high. I think just like figure out what gives you energy and then try to spend more of your time on, and day on that than stuff that takes away energy from you. So it was just a very hippie thing for me to say. Yeah. No, that seems much simpler. Yeah. Than I'm making it. <laughs> There's a concept here that I do like to share about leverage, right? There's a there's an inherent tension between productivity and leverage. I think we are trained from basically our our days in school that high productivity is the goal, which is you want to you want to have a packed calendar, you want to be doing like eight different things at once. You should feel bad if your efficiency went down 10% yeah. compared to last week or whatever. Uh, and yep. you're not meeting your OKRs or whatever. And the exact opposite to that is leverage where you want to have one thing you want to do one thing and just have a lot of impacts come out of that and i think there's a movement at least in vc circles but also in sort of tech bro circles uh of waking up to 
the idea of slack in your life and having peace and not having so much going on and just doing high leverage activities that help you extend your reach without you necessarily putting more hours in or being or being uh, super productive like un- yeah. like being unproductive is fantastic it's it's actually people who cannot figure out leverage who have to try to be productive if you yeah. can figure out leverage then productivity doesn't matter at all <laughs> yeah no that's that's good stuff I think I intuitively knew that. I just, I have a really hard time. Like, I feel like I'm much more seeing the tree versus the forest. So I really appreciate talking with people like you that see the broader picture. I think I have a lot of thoughts and then I read an article of yours and it helps me like, oh, put words to those thoughts that I couldn't really formalize in my head. I should really write about this more just, but I feel like I haven't got it yet. You see me out there, you see me doing all sorts of random crap. So I haven't (laughs) internalized it fully. I haven't let go of the the sort of productivity mantra part of that is me being very risk averse part of that is me being doubting myself definitely the stuff that you see from me has extremely high leverage uh i i think okay the other thing is i also have second thoughts or doubts about this whole leverage thing which is Hmm. that's why i have a very sort of derisive tone about vcs and tech bros because everyone wants to be high leverage everyone wants to do the 80 20 Nobody wants to ship stuff. They just want to tweet tweet thoughts and then they think they're done, right? That's what they think high leverage is. But really, the people who get shit done sweat the fine fine details and take things to the finish line, right? And guess what? Doing that last 10% is super low leverage, (laughs) (laughs) right? Like, oh man, like uh, I got to fix this stupid SEO description or... Uh, I, you know, like the OG image isn't right. Like, uh, let me go fix that. You know, like yeah. that kind of small little details matter for the quality of the products and for shipping things. But all the high leverage people don't feel like they're above that, you mm. know, because it's not a good use of time. So, are they the high leverage people, or the, you're saying the people that want to be high leverage? Is that the VCs and the tech bros? Yeah, exactly. What what is tech bro? I feel like I probably am a tech bro, and I don't want to be a tech bro. But I feel like I'm a white male that has a podcast, so I can't. <laughs> I can't escape it. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I, I'm a tech bro. I, 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 you know, I'm sort of reluctantly in that uh, demographic. Uh, yeah. yeah, the tech bro is just a, a bro that's in tech. <laughs> okay. Yeah. Well, that, that like you know is fully is fully aware. Like, it, okay, I, I do like to have this mismetric. Like, if you're fully up to speed on like the latest news, the gossip, like you know all the the new launches and new products, you're definitely a tech bro. Like, okay. If nothing okay. surprises you, you're a tech bro. <laughs> right. If you if you constantly if you know like what like AUM is, if you know what ARR is, like if you know all these acronyms without even blinking, you're a tech bro. Well, as in the, the real people get shit done out there are wonderfully blissfully ignorant. They'll be like, "What is this whole you know Twitter kerfuffle that's going on? I don't know. I just <laughs> completely stayed out of the loop." But you, being a tech bro, you would know the blow by blow of like. Elon did this, Twitter did that, Elon did other thing, Twitter did other thing. Doesn't matter. <laughs> this, stu- this stuff doesn't matter to some extent. And tech bros are so uh, involved in their own filter bubble that they don't see their own forest for the trees. So You said Twitter. I think, I think I've been on Twitter like actively for a year or so. And mm-hmm. I don't know that I'm better for it. I don't know that like I, I know that I'm very influenced by that sphere and, and sort of feeling like, I think that's why it's so surprising to me when I hear about cloud adoption or I hear about online shopping. It just seems like everyone lives in this little community and it's very easy to just 
not really remember <laughs> the people that are actually around me in my local community and, and what life is actually like. So I, I do sort of, is there a way to balance it? Is there a way to balance being very online, being a member of this Twitter community and still keep like a good grasp on the real world? Uh, I don't think I personally have figured that out a lot. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> um, but, you know, I think, I think it's basically the, equiv- the developer equivalent of Gold Touch Grass. Um, which is yeah. <laughs> go outside. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> have have hobbies, have kids. <laughs> that I was going to say, I've got two boys, and they make me be outside a whole lot. Uh, yeah. So that that probably helps, I guess, somewhat. Yeah, yeah. Uh, that, that, I think the biggest thing for me, just career and in terms of the always online, the tech broness. I think giving my wife the opportunity to set some like boundaries around the time that I am working. I think like this stage of my career, I've been able to sort of say I'm going to work less and, and just seeing her role and kind of what her life looks like and realizing how it shouldn't be this different. Like we shouldn't have such a, I don't know, huge chasm in terms of our daily life. Like I get to go enjoy what I do all day. Yeah. That's helped. Like we've carved out a lot of time. That's like, this is time for family. I think, yeah, but my online, my work life feels very homogenous, I guess. And like, it could be better. (laughs) For me, it's like, all right, figure out what is probably going to make you money and focus all your attention on that. Ignore everything else. Try to stick to, okay, what can you reasonably explain to your non-technical relatives? If you can't really justify it to them, then maybe have a second thought about like, all right, what am I really doing here? You know, am I... Am I really making a world a better place by inventing a better form of infrastructure as code? Probably not. Yeah. But (laughs) unless unless you become a billionaire by creating HashiCorp, right? Like Yeah, I guess it happens in that very rare instance. Yeah. Right. Like but it it can it can it can happen. Uh, you just have to be super clear on like what are you trying to do here? And just think like, yeah, be super intellectually honest about like, look, you're you're in this for the money. Whatever you work on is probably gonna be irrelevant in ten years anyway doesn't matter but yeah. you're at least going to build you're going to have fun you're going to build some relationships you're going to make some people happy uh, create some jobs whatever and then spend the rest of your time with family and, and friends that was that was a very succinct way of of like wrapping up a lot of the things i needed answered so i don't know if anyone on that listens to this podcast cares about any of this i really appreciate <laughs> the conversation we just had no no i think i think yeah this is very real and i really appreciate it you bring it up because uh yeah I, I don't get a, a lot of chance to talk about this yeah no i i live in the ozarks so i like tech literacy here is super low <clears throat> i think that's where getting into like the twitter community it was like i have friends now that i can talk to about technology and things i care about but I, yeah finding that balance i think it's really very practical of you very uh, wise of you to point out that Ultimately, like this stuff doesn't necessarily matter in a decade. Uh, that whatever I think I'm working on that's so important uh, is probably more about the people, more about what I'm, you know, kind of enjoying the process along the way, and that it's making a living, and that we're moving a little bit forward, whatever parts we touch and whatever people we can uh, be involved with. That was very, very nice for me to hear. I, I will point out one thing, right? So humanity is kind of moving onto this metaverse. Like the, 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 if there's if there's anything that's actually real about the metaverse is that you have your community online that is dissociated from your physical community. Yeah. Right? You, you're, it's, you're so into AWS or, or cloud or anything like that. Uh, and no one else around you physically is. And it's fine. Yeah. So, th- and, and this is something that actually the crypto bros have probably got right. So I think uh, Balaji Srinivasan, who is uh, one of the crypto investors at Andreessen Horowitz, he released this book recently about building a digital nation 
which is really compelling. Which is like essentially there's the there's the world of physical nations, like the ones the ones with country boundaries. But then mm-hmm. there's the digital nations, which are which are formed online, and and you are a member of the digital nation of probably tech Twitter, you know, whatever. Yeah, yeah, um, or, or AWS uh, Twitter. And I kind of liken it to the difference between friends being the family that you choose versus the f- the family that you have is is the one that you're born with. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So like where you're physically located is just the nation that you're born with or the nation that you have to live in for your family reasons. But the one that you do online, that's the nation that you choose. So you're you're a member of a different nation online. Yeah. And that nation is is global. It's it's uh, ephemeral. It's 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 virtual. Whatever whatever that is. But it's just much. It's it's something that you you prefer to spend your time in as compared to your digital as, as compared to your physical nation. Yeah, so I I feel like I just since getting really active in Twitter and being involved with the AWS community even outside of Twitter, it is so global. It's helped me kind of see the perspective of America where I live so differently. Just getting all those other points of view and just knowing that when I interact with someone, it's not this base assumption that they understand the world through the lens of America like I do. I very much appreciate that. I feel like I'm, if anything, becoming more and more dissociated with the country I physically live in <laughs> because I just don't like, I don't interact much with people uh, outside of these walls. I don't know if it was COVID and like sort of being in all the time. I always have been kind of an at-home person. So, so that is, that is dangerous, right? That is dangerous. Yeah. It feels dangerous. Yeah. Tell me why. Uh, well, because if you're, if you don't care about the physical environment that you're in, then it's going to degrade it's going to diverge away from your preference yeah uh, i don't know that's inherently bad <laughs> to me yeah <laughs> like like th- there's definitely a physical element of humanity that we should keep around right we are not just yeah. brains plugged into the matrix like essentially this leads to the matrix right like that w- we might also just be plugged into to something virtual online and and, and spend zero time on a, on a physical environment you know most people would not like to live that way um, right and that means we we should we should care about what's going on around us and we should we should try to have some physical presence that that we actually proud of and, and enjoy and i think um uh that that there's a tension there that i think is is sort of the modern humanistic existentialism which is like how much of my life should i spend online versus how much should yeah. i spend in person and the fact that you have to choose is just nuts <laughs> <laughs> yeah and I, I think my problem like if i'm just being honest with myself and just thinking through this like i I spend about as much time, I think, in the real world, but it's it's just with my family at home. It's with my neighbor. I got a neighbor that I go for walks every week with. It's like my very, very hyper-local community. But like what's going on in the city of Nixa is like 10,000 people where I live. Like what's the local government doing? I don't know. I have no idea. What's the state of Missouri doing? Probably stuff I don't like. Uh- <laughs> exactly. And, you know, and, and look, like this has a very real impact on us because these people are making the laws that we have to follow and we don't have a voice because we choose not to have a voice because we choose to not care but hey like is it our is it really our fault when the supreme court or the uh a congress makes a law that we don't like well yeah i mean what what you know what did you expect like you didn't spend any time yeah investing in that in that part of the world like when are we gonna have a software engineer in congress right (laughs) you know that's that's really the 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 big question yeah there's not there's not a lot of tech representation is there in government in the United States. No, because everyone hates politics. They're, they yeah. they love to dunk on it. They don't want to do a thing about it. Um, but like that's kind of the problem. I don't care which side of the the, the bench you're on. Like just the apolitic 
physicalness because you yeah. feel like you're not a member of the physical nation, you're a member of the digital nation. That is a problem for the physical nation for, for, because at the end of the day, that's that's base layer of reality. Yeah. Oh, I think of that. There was that like Netflix documentary. I don't even know if it was just on Netflix, but there was that social, well, I don't remember what it was called, but it was about social media and had all these people from like Facebook and other places or ex Facebook talking about just this impact that the very online nature of our generation, uh, what it's, what it's doing to our brains and all that. This all sort of ties in in my mind. Like I definitely need to do some more things that are, yeah, going to impact my life, my kids' lives, uh, sort of being more involved, I guess, outside of like, I divide my time into I'm at work and I'm on a computer all day. Or I'm with my family and we're like out in the yard playing. Like it's those two things and I make no time for anything else. But that's probably not good. Not not a good long-term solution. Okay, now I'm getting way off the rails. AWS FM, like people that are listening to this for some good <laughs> AWS bits. <laughs> They've tuned out long ago. I do have a couple more questions here. Getting back to like, like I'm an, a developer. I like building sort of like full stack web applications. And I happen to like leveraging AWS. When should I care? I'm going to ask you a few things. When should I care about Cloudflare? Like they announce all this cool stuff and it really is genuinely cool sounding, but I have not, t- there's so much of a barrier to adoption. Like for me to change my day to day and start using a new thing, like when should I care about Cloudflare? I have an article on this uh, about uh, how Cloudflare is playing Go while AWS plays chess. Um, yep. So I highly recommend reading, reading that up. Uh, essentially, Cloudflare is a really good CDN. Uh, AWS has its own. Um, I would think you can you can do up comparisons of Cloudflare and Cloudflare all day long, uh, but I would say that Cloudflare probably has much more of a security focus than Cloudfront has, and that by default wins you um, the the majority of the business. And it's also, it happens to be very easily adoptable because you just need to configure some DNS. Um, yeah, just being just is carrying a lot of weight there. And <laughs> <laughs> it comes to DNS. If you're asking someone in the Ozarks around me, then <laughs> what's DNS? First of all. <laughs> <laughs> so, so uh, I think it basically starts from the outside in, right? Like yeah. you want to you want to think about Cloudflare. You think about uh, where your users' traffic is coming in. Uh, maybe you want to protect those with Cloudflare, and then you want to come in a little bit. Uh, Cloudflare has this S three wrapper called R two uh, that basically reduces a lot of your outgoing bandwidth costs. Um, and that seems like a basically a Pareto optimal win. Pareto being you're no worse off in any dimension and you're better off in one dimension, uh, which is cost. Yep. And that's just a function of Cloudflare. Like, how many points of presence does AWS have? I think in the hundreds, uh, maybe 100, 150, something like that. Yeah. Cloudflare has tens of thousands, right? Oh, like it's just, okay. It's, it's just a much better edge network than AWS has. And so it's... They just have built a, diff- a fundamentally different business model, and I think once you understand that from a fundamental like physics and like you know points of presence perspective, then you're understanding. Okay, this is what I'm getting that AWS doesn't do. Like it's not a straight up one to one competitor. It's trying to tackle the cloud problem from a different way. Um, so the, so you do the you do the cloud uh, traffic protection, then you do the sort of uh, egress charges, which are which are sort of the main sticking point of AWS. Then you get into the the extra stuff that um, Cloudflare offers for application builders, right? And this is I, I focus on this because I'm I'm an application builder. Yeah, Cloudflare has other offerings for security that I have no idea. Security and networking that I have no idea about. Uh, particularly if you need to wire up a building or an office, uh, they have a box that is that's pretty pretty sweet from everything I've heard. Cloudflare One is the name of it. If you want to Google okay. it, yeah, I do. But for application developers, Cloudflare workers, that team is the yep. sort of primary team that's working on that. Um, and that is 
there's edge function service that would be a big leap to adopt because they don't run Node.js. They run uh, V8 isolates, which are uh, yep. taken out of the Chrome uh, V8 engine. Is it sort of similar to like Lambda at Edge? Like the same kind of... No, it is not. Oh, is Lambda at Edge Node? Yes. Oh, it is? Yes. It is. No, what is it similar to? It's similar to, I guess, like middleware and Next.js. That's that same kind of a limited runtime environment. I, I, I think so. Yeah, exactly, exactly. I would say it's more limited than Lambda at Edge. Um, and it's also, it's got different costs uh, and criteria. Basically, there's there's just more of the open source ecosystem that it will be incompatible with Cloudflare workers yeah. than it would be with Lambda at Edge. Um, and that's the thing that you need to know because you're going to use... CloudFront functions. Ah, okay. Yeah, that's the other, that's the one I keep forgetting. I don't know who's using it, but... It's it's that's what I was thinking of. Right. So so I used to I used to use this only for smart redirects, like looking at the headers of a request and saying, yep. all right, if you're coming in with a header of that indicating you're from a certain region, certain IP, certain language, then I'm gonna route you to a different location than I would normally. Only for routing. Yep. But now uh, edge functions are becoming so capable that you might be able to do rendering on demands instead of just routing. Um, and that, yep. that actually is unlocking a few a few new new things because on top of that, Cloudflare also has persistence solutions uh, with Workers KV, which is their eventually consistent store, and Workers uh, and Durable Objects, which is their strongly consistent store. So either one of those, combined with uh, the ability to render, means that you can actually just host a site full stack uh, yeah. with CRUD on the edge. There's no origin server. There's no region. You're just everywhere. You just have everything everywhere all at once, uh, which is my favorite phrase that I try to sneak in. Yeah, that's super compelling. So yeah, you know your your latencies go down from like 300 milliseconds to nine just because you're you're just pinging near a cell tower or something. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> that's incredible. And they they've just announced. I don't remember D1 or whatever. Or I don't. I can't keep track of their product names, but they they have like a distributed SQL offering as well that's coming or SQLite. Yeah. yeah, SQLite at the edge. Yeah, yeah. I mean, everything. Everything's just built on top. It's just clearly built on top of the uh, original persistence primitive that they have. Um, and so, once they got strongly consistent and eventually consistent, that's those are the two dimensions that you really care about. You can build any sort of solution on that. So, the SQLite offering is just built on on top of that. Yeah. Okay. So, I don't know if I'm gonna like jump on this stuff yet, but it does sound like there is a world where I could build side projects just on Cloudflare. Like yeah. stuff runs all at the edge. And I don't have to build that. I guess is the interop, like if I want to still stand up a GraphQL API in AWS, like AppSync or something, is there interopping between the two services? You said like their durable storage sits on top of S3. So it's actually, you're using an S3 bucket. You're just wrapping it with a Cloudflare thing. It's a, it's a proxy. Okay. Are, are people building like hybrid Cloudflare? Oh, I know they are. Hybrid Cloudflare and AWS backends today, I think. I think I know of a couple at least. Is that a thing you recommend? I would say, yeah, there there are. Um, I I say this is definitely on the cutting edge. Yeah, you 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 do it because it's like Twitter. You, you feel this like doing where, it because <laughs> where you do it and you talk about it on Twitter and, like, and then everyone thinks it's theoretically <laughs> possible. It's just like probably not not in any size. Doesn't make sense yet. Okay, so I'm gonna say I don't need to care about Cloudflare yet. That's what I'm gonna say based on this conversation. I mean, I should. I'm going to keep reading the articles, but the only thing I'll point out is don't stop there because this is a, this is what they have achieved in the past like three, four years. They clearly have oh, a roadmap. Right. They clearly are going to keep going, right? And just eating the cloud from outside in, which is the, the, the name of the article. Like, what else of the functionality can be replicated in an edge-first way? Cloudflare is probably going to do that. 
right? Yeah. And and so there's a whole roadmap that just consists of looking at the AWS you know console and just going right that first, <laughs> that first, that first. Yeah. Yep, yep. And then there's a question of like just what kind of application are you building, and do you really need the full set of AWS services, or can you just start from the from the edge first? Um, yeah. That's how disruption happens, right? Disruption happens from by taking a, a section in the market that nobody cared about and making that your entire thing, and then making it so capable over time that people see no use to use the old thing. But it takes a course of what 10, 20 years to do that because Whew. AWS has just spent the past twenty years doing doing that uh, in the <laughs> yeah. first place. I, I just don't keep those time frames in mind. Like Twitter has warped my sense of when things are coming. And when you say 10, 20 years, it's like I don't think about anything that's coming 10, 20 years from now. I think I'm thinking what's coming in the next eighteen months. Right. But like you know that's that's a problem for us, right? Because that that short term mentality stops us from betting on big trends. Oh, yeah. early and and i think to build anything of significance you have to do it for 10 years yeah i gotta get off twitter that's what i'm coming to here uh <laughs> no, I, think, I think i'm going to do it in healthy amounts so actually one of my long-standing wish list projects is to actually build like a twitter client that has a time limit that a oh, finite nice. scroll yes. client uh with a time limit uh if you want to have you're gonna have more time you're gonna have to pay to donate to your favorite charity or something oh i, I love know, it that, that's my yeah that's my wish list I will use it. You've got your first user if if you build it. I would just say the only reason I don't do it is because nobody trusts the Twitter API. So, <laughs> so uh, one more, should I care about it yet or not? Because I see Brian LaRue talk about this quite a bit. Dino, should I care about Dino yet? I think so. I think it's there. I think it's there. Um, so what is Dino? Dino is sort of the, the new runtime that the original creator of Node.js is saying, all right, I'm going to do this over. Node.js has been yeah. around for 10 years. I see all the flaws of it now. I'm going to start over from scratch. I was very skeptical on Dino when it first came out, but it's been two years. And it's really shown a lot of progress. Um, and I think it, the, the governance is right, the funding model was right, and the adoption is growing. Um, what is really compelling to me about Dino, um, just not, for, not from a technical perspective, from a business perspective, yeah. which, is, which feeds into the technical. The business side... There are companies, so Superbase and Netlify, both launched uh, edge functions powered by Dino, which means that their biggest products shipping capability announcement of the year of 2022 was someone else's product. And it was a it was yeah. a startup that's way younger than them, but they just have the right abstraction and the right uh, cloud service that is already functional that they're launching. So it's weird. Dino's go-to-market strategy is just waiting for other people to wake up and go, I need this. Dino's the only <laughs> supplier in the market for this. And yeah, let's just, just bring it on and ship it as our thing. Well, it really is Dino's thing, but they're just letting other people white label them. Uh, it's, yeah. it's fantastic. So, so I mean, from, from that perspective alone, in the past six months, I've really changed to, to from like, okay, Node and Dino will coexist for, for the foreseeable future just because there's such a huge install base of Node uh, into every incremental app will probably be built in Dino. Well, that's, yeah. No, that's what I needed to hear. I think I, there's a lot of excitement. I see it all, but it's all Twitter. So I needed to hear it face-to-face that it's worth worth digging into. Uh, one last question. We do have a couple more minutes here. Do you have thoughts on the whole macro, like venture capital situation and how that might impact the next five, 10 years. And I don't know if we're entering into some tightening cycle. Uh, I just, we've never seen anything like the last 10 years, 13, whatever years of government sort of injecting so much capital into the system. And if that starts going away, do you have opinions or thoughts on all these startups that are making our lives better? Like I think of DevX startups where I don't know how financially sound they are yet. They've been living off the VC. Do you have thoughts on all that? Not fully formed ones, but I can give you a quick uh, hit. Yeah. yeah. So, 
how bad did it get? Um, it got to the point. So the average price to sales ratio of a publicly traded company would be in the range of 10 to 50. You know, th- yeah. that's a very wide range. Uh, so we, meaning like your market capitalization, the total value of the company is 50 times your sales. Yep. In private markets, the price to sales ratios of funding rounds, A to B, series A to B and all that got up to 1,000 times. Oh, my word. We had 1,500 uh, at one of the startups that I was at. And I heard of one startup that was 2,500. Wow. So that was the peak in November of last year. Yeah. Um, those days are gone. Um, people are now asking for 100x, uh, which is, is very like 10x fall. Like it, yeah. Very, very big. That's why no one's, almost nobody's raising money. So that, that VC market is right up. I'll say like it has different impacts on different stages so uh if you and, and this is this is all to do with like okay would you invest in stripe at 95 billion when shopify used to be 100 billion and now it's worth 20 billion right you probably want to buy the more quality asset that's already publicly listed than yeah. the the uh, very stable asset that uh is online that is uh at a high valuation so like just the deal making has just gone off like uh I think at the seed stage, people are completely unaffected. I think people are cognizant of the fact that economic cycles repeat or, or like this is not going to, this is a recession. Yeah. We are probably already in a recession right now. We are in a tightening cycle right now, but this is probably not one of those that's just going to drag out super long. Yeah. And startups take 10 years to build anyway. So if why should your early stage investing be affected at all by what the current level of the S&P is? Yeah. It shouldn't. Yeah. No, it's true. I mean, I so much of this conversation just echoes your your bias towards long term versus short term. I should have known that coming in. I'm asking all these questions that are very much like there's a clear answer if you just think outside of the next year. <laughs> uh, I, love, I love training people to do that. Yeah, no, it's it's really nice. Uh, take a long term perspective uh, in the history and then project it out uh, to the future as well and try to make decisions on that. So. Yeah, it's it's sort of refreshing, especially in this sort of like anxiety-ridden digital space i feel like when you zoom out things feel a lot less uh pressing or anxiety laden i guess i don't know <laughs> uh yeah i appreciate that it's weird because uh, i think that's true but at the same time you know you, you only you only hear on this earth for for so long when you, when you zoom out that actually reduces the available number of decisions that you can possibly make which means that yeah. each decision goes from being a two-way door into a one-way door because you want to make more substantive, substantial decisions. Uh, therefore, for example, when I changed jobs, it took me like two months of agonizing to, to finally land yeah. on something. Uh, because I could have done any number of things. And it was just, I think you have to really examine your beliefs as to what the long-term trends are going to be uh, and trade that off versus being happy in the short run. Yeah, I'm going to be trying to do that. I think I'm in the middle of the agonizing stage right now, trying to figure out what's next. Uh, but I'm going to try and think a little more long-term. The thing the thing I'll point you to, you know, when, you, when you're talking about courses and stuff like that and leverage, I'll say definitely check out Eric Jorgensen, who is the book writer for Naval Ravikant. Uh, he wrote the almanac of Naval Ravikant, um, and he's trying to build up a thesis or a body of knowledge around what leverage is and what leverage means. And then the mm-hmm. other thing I'll point you to is uh, Nathan Barry, who's the founder of ConvertKit, who talked about the letters of wealth creation and how some things are more high leverage than others. 
So thank you so much for that. Again, this podcast may just be for me, but that's okay because <laughs> I got a lot out of it. Thank you so much for taking the time, Sean. I, uh, yeah, I didn't, I didn't know how much I'd get in on my pay. I think we covered half the things I thought about talking to you about. You're just a wealth of knowledge. You're sort of a wise sage in this community and. It's been so great to pick your brain. Thanks for coming on. I think we're the same age. <laughs> oh, yeah. Well, yeah, you've been using your time better, I guess. <laughs> you've been doing more high leverage things or something. <laughs> yeah, thanks for having me. I do have to run, but we can, uh, we can talk, talk anytime. I really enjoyed this conversation. That sounds good. Thanks, Sean.